the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today's talk is entitled Overburden. Not maybe a word we get to use every day, not because we don't know what it means. We don't know that state of being to which it refers every day. That sense of being overwhelmed and then overtaken by the rush of life, activities done and undone, which are our undoing. In today's gospel, Martha is busy about the business of taking care of an important guest. She bears the burden of being the older sister, the one who gives orders, who takes charge, who takes responsibility, who takes the blame, should anything go wrong. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Distracted, the ESV has it, as distracted it is. But the distraction is a way of life for all of us, the basic ground for which we begin to experience anything. Not a distraction at all. Indeed, we would welcome a distraction from our distractions, our perpetual distractedness. And that is the quest we're on right now. Happily, politics often provides it. Reality TV made real, sort of. But your typical stay-at-home mom knows well what it means to be distracted with much serving, with too much of a good thing. I like the word burdened here. Overburdened, as Lao and Nida propose, for the Greek perispato, one of a cluster of hypoxes, that is, words that only occur once in the Greek text, yet on the nuances of whose meaning so much depends. The word means to be drawn off from around, thrown off by centrifugal force from the center into the periphery of life. To be so overburdened by various distractions as to be worried and anxious, Lawanida translated. There is something Martha is trying to get to, it seems. She is not just irritated that she is left on her own to rush around and get done the chores that biblical hospitality expected a woman to perform while the men sat around. Uh, this is a far cry, by the way, from Abraham. Nor is she annoyed that her sister is in the main room sitting with the men, sitting at the feet of the master, no less, and hanging on his every word as if she were one of his disciples. One does not know what to make of that. As it's not done by women, and there's for no category for what Mary is doing in there. Women, for women, the household is their proper sphere unless the men are present and then they withdraw, just like Sarah. The rationale for her state of mind she gives to Jesus. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. There it is, you say. She's simply dealing with the division of labor, with how much she has to do and how little time to do it. We all understand that, and that's reason enough to complain. But Jesus sees into her heart, and he sees more than exasperation with the conditions of existence, more even than having been deserted by a sister in a time of need. 
You're anxious and troubled about many things, he says, reminding us again and again that looked at in terms of affect, how clinical this translation is, how detached. It's so difficult to get a sense of the strength of emotion that is driving people, and time and time again, we find that our translation has simply betrayed us. Who talks like that anyway, who says to their child, you are anxious and troubled indeed. <laughs> Let us discourse, have a discourse about that. We say, you're strung out, chill out, sit down, let's talk about it. You're overstressed and overwrought with fear underneath it all. But there's more than that, overburdened. Now I love that word, which means weighed down, not anger, not fear, but sadness. Sadness weighs down Martha. I think of the geological sense in which that term overburden is used. In the mineral extraction business, when we're mining for gold or uranium or something precious, the overburden, also called the waste or the spoil, is the material that constitutes the soil horizon that lives above that is deposited on top of the stuff you want to get to. The colluvial or alluvial or fluvial organic deposit, the LFH and A horizons that you must dig through, excavate, excavate to get to the treasure that lies hidden beneath. You take out your spades and you start digging. Martha is not just working the anger-fear axis, pumping cortisol into her bloodstream and energizing her animus against her sisters. No, I think there is sadness here. Too, and a little of envy, a bit of bitterness, that she can't be in there too, listening to Jesus. She knows she's not supposed to be there, and she knows she is supposed to be there. And one still small voice cuts through the din in her inner ear. And Jesus, if any doubt were left, gives her the answer she needs to hear. Martha, Martha, you are anxious, you are stressed out, turned upside down about many things, but one thing is necessary. Martha has chosen the good portion. Martha has chosen the right thing to do, and this will not be taken away from her. It's hers for the asking. You're all stressed about the chaff of life, and yet, yes, you are stressed out because you want to honor me, to show me hospitality, to serve me. You love me, and you are showing it. But I want to love you, Jesus is saying, with the time I've got. I want to serve you, to teach you to proclaim, to witness to me, to share my love with others. And to do that, I must serve you because that's what a teacher or a mentor does, serves the one to whom she or he gives. I must give, but you must receive. The things you are upset about are good things, but you are letting the good get in the way of the best. And the best thing is the right thing, and Mary has chosen the right thing. The things are connected. Serve, ser, excuse me, serving and being served, they're all parts of the one whole. But right now, you have me with you. You will not always have me with you. 
Mary has gone for the best, and it will not be taken from her, not by me at least, but who am I? Who do you say that I am? The second person of the Trinity, but I won't Paul rank right here. Martha and Mary will reappear in scripture, significantly in the gospel according to John. That these are the same people and not just the same names argues for the significance of these characters and suggests credible historical justification for their actual existence. But for now, there are lessons to be learned from this one little pericope. Lessons about service, lessons about love. The first is that the one thing needful, the one thing necessary, takes priority over every other thing, every other good thing that we can do to show our love. And that thing is knowing Jesus in his own words, being disciples, being teachable, word from word, passing down his words and his word as best we can. Doing deeds of hospitality, yes, of loving service, even acceding to the imperative of social justice, which comes through pretty strong in scripture. These are all fine and good. But the living presence of Jesus must work his way through us by way of his living word. Then, only then, do we know what to do and how to speak. The second is that it is needful to Jesus that Mary, that women, serve too, not just as servants, but as masters, as teachers, as those entrusted with the proclamation of the word. I don't see what other conclusion Jesus has left us to draw unless Mary too is just another hapless hapax, that is just an isolated incident from which we have nothing to learn. That's not good history, though, and it's not salvation history at all. Why would it be there at all in a text in which everything else and everyone else stands as an example to us to emulate or to eschew? Perhaps one other point is simpler, and that is the point about service. If the ultimate aspiration of the church is to turn the hearts and hands of all to service, to serving in the in the world, not just folding our hands in prayer and waiting for heaven, but setting our hands to the task of the new creation, then the idea that God exists to serve us, that God exists to serve us, can stop us in our tracks. Yet that is exactly that and nothing else, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed in his saints. For in him in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, was given to humble himself, empty himself of all his omnis, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, and through the cross and through his death to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. His death means our death sets us free for life. And he dies our deaths with each of us so that we may live our resurrection. So much of our busy life is caught up with the diversion, the ultimate distractions that are distracting us from death and the fear of death which underlies everything that drives this world. 
taking our attention from what we can't outrun and trying to give us something to keep our mind off it unless it's too late. Stay in the church. Meet with people who've been given days or months to live, and you'll often find out how little of that work can be done in a few hours or a few days. Our death sets us free to put down our burdens, to get off the merry-go-round, to stop doing the same stupid thing again and again that we've been doing all our lives. It sets us free to try to love, to open ourselves to others, which means to ask for more forgiveness for all those who matter to us, who we try to matter, to care for, and find that we hurt even as we seek to give them our best. It draws us out of disengagement back into this messy world to offer our love and our service, born through it by the Lord who served us, dying that death that set us free, free from the fear of death. This act of service then is the mandate for his disciples, and the disciples were to follow as he led, dying one by one for his glory and for his name. We would do well then to set aside our dreams of glory and even our hopes of living a peaceful and contented life and sacrificing everything to defend us from life's trials so we can enjoy the fruit of our labors as our rightful reward for weathering all the distractions of this busy life. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just good, but not good enough. It's not our best. We are invited instead to glory in the cross, and the one who walks with us every step of the journey, in the Christ who dwells within us, who is our hope, who carries our burdens, who never wearies, who carries even us in the end, in his arms like lost sheep, who lifts us on his shoulder like little kids and carries us so we can see over the horizon the place he leads us, our eternal home. Let's pray that we may do the same for others. Give the hope of that life beyond death, which has its roots right here, and help one another to live that life even now. Amen.